Father, as we uh, look finally um, at this passage in Mark, we do pray that uh, you would grow in us the, the mind of Christ. We pray that the cross would not just be the way that we're saved, but the way that we live. Amen. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it fundamentally means, to follow Jesus. Which begs the question, how closely am I following him? How closely are you following Jesus? Jesus, the crucified one. Jesus, the one who said his life was about dying for others. At its heart, the question of, am I following Christ, is the question, is my life cross-shaped? To ask, am I following Christ closely, am I following Jesus as a disciple, is, is my life cross-shaped? As we turn to Mark 8, uh, we hit the pivotal moment really in Mark's gospel. It's the turning point finally after, you know, raising dead people, calming storms with a word, turning uh, a whole load of, you know, a, a boy's lunchbox into a, a banquet for 5,000 people. Finally, the disciples have twigged. He's not just an ordinary person there, you know. They take their time, but they do get there, and uh, predictably it's Peter who shoots off his mouth first, says, oh, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Duh, I've worked it out. Uh, God come to rescue and rule his people. Brilliant. But immediately Jesus blows their minds, because the very next thing he says is that he has come not to reign on a throne in Jerusalem, but to be nailed to a cross outside Jerusalem. The mission of the Messiah is to die. He will rise and rule in glory. But it is cross first and then crown. That's the way it is for the Messiah, cross and then crown, which uh, goes down like a lead balloon with the disciples rather predictably. Um, and so there's the, uh, the rather awkward moment when uh, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, as he says, no, you don't want to go to a cross, Jesus. But Jesus being Jesus, he doesn't say, look, I know it's really hard for you to get your minds around. Um, you know, I'm sorry. This is, gosh, this is, this is quite a big deal, really. Uh, Jesus being Jesus, there's none of that. He just punches straight in with, uh, look, you think that's bad that I'm going to a cross? You want to follow me? You better go to a cross too. <laughs> but hey, that's Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, rather than the cuddly Jesus of our imagination. Mark 8:34. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, "Look, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the angels. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, uh, the German pastor who was martyred by the Nazis in the Second World War, said, When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids them, Come die. Come die. And this is not sort of advanced super-level Christianity. This is just basic discipleship. Discipleship 101. And we are part of a consumer society where the, you know, the first question we ask uh, when we arrive at a, a new church is, what, do I, what am I going to get out of this place? Do I like the people here? Do I like the style of worship? Do I enjoy the talks? Um, we're just part of that culture. I'm not criticizing you. I'm saying our culture. That's how we 
We are consumers and we consume uh, Christianity. And so it is very hard for us to get our heads around this. If you want to follow Jesus, the fundamental call is deny myself. Deny myself. But what does it mean, verse 34, to deny myself? Jesus expands by saying it means to take up my cross and to follow him. And it seems that idea is really at the heart, actually, of Paul's hymn of praise in Philippians 2, where you get the cross is, is not um, the, the achievement that Jesus does for us. It's the example that Jesus sets before us. It's, look, the cross is not just what Christ does for us. It's the pattern that he calls us to emulate. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus. Philippians 2, the Jesus who put the needs of others before his own needs. Uh, Jesus, who did not worry about my rights, but about your salvation. Jesus, who humbly served those who were way, way beneath him. Jesus, who loved the enemies who hated him, who lied about him, who betrayed him, who spat at him and tortured him to death. Jesus, who was willing to pour out everything he had, even his life, to see other people saved. That, Jesus says... Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That means we come to Jesus with no conditions when we come to him. You can't say to Jesus, look, Jesus, I really want to be saved. I desperately want to be forgiven and set free from the fear of death and the power of sin and hell. But but Jesus, you've got to understand relationships are kind of off limits. Uh, I, I really want to get married, especially to this person and... You know, uh, things will work much better if we just agree to disagree on one or two points there, okay? It's only one area of my life. Is that all right? Or, Jesus, look, um, I'm really happy to, to, to serve you, follow you. I'll, I'll even fill out a giving form at church. But you've got to understand career and standard of living. They are kind of off limits, if that's all right. Uh, you know, you can't expect me to give up my career. That's just a bit odd. And... Look, I'm just not really up for falling way behind my friends in standard of living. Okay? Is that all right? But I'll still commit my life to you. It kind of doesn't work like that with Jesus. Uh, there was um, a guy called James was converted uh, a couple of years ago at Midweek in Mayfair, which is this uh, lunchtime uh, service that we run around the corner for people, especially working property and finance in, in Mayfair. A number of people go there because it's brilliant networking. It's basically a room full of people who um, who work in the same industry. So the eyes light up and then they kind of hear the gospel. Um, and uh, and this guy, Matt, um, uh, this guy, Matt, came. You, know, you don't invite people. We don't bill it as a networking event. We make it clear it's a gospel event. This guy, Matt, was converted a couple of years ago. And um, so James was converted a couple of years ago. And he came to speak to Matt Fuller um, and he, uh, after reading through the Gospel of Mark, he said, it seems to me that uh, Jesus kind of says you've got to give everything if you want to follow him. And he never apologizes for that. It's not very British. <laughs> no, it's not. It's Jesus. And so the question is, how closely am I following the Jesus who denied himself and went to his cross? How closely am I following him? Have I Britishified Jesus? Or am I following the Jesus of the Bible? To follow Jesus means to deny myself, but it does mean glory in the future. 
The second half of verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Verse 38, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. These words in Mark's Gospel are some of the most uncompromising words in the whole of Scripture, I think. And if all there was was to Christianity is deny yourself and take up a cross, it would be a pretty hard sell. (laughs) A pretty hard sell indeed. But it isn't. There is also the promise that if we lose our life for Jesus, we will gain it for eternity. That if we endure the shame of following him now, then he will return in glory with his father's angels, and on that day, we'll be with him. When we give up everything to follow Jesus, we find the Jesus we follow gives us eternal life. Not it's a trade, like I earn eternal life by giving stuff up. It's that I give stuff up to follow Jesus. And as I follow Jesus, I find, wow, the Jesus we follow gives us eternal life. We drop everything to cling to the one who gives us everything and more. And if we're not ashamed of him, we'll join in the Father's glory when he returns. Now, that uh, verse I hate, if I'm honest, because there have been so many times I've been ashamed of Jesus when I've piped down or hoped people won't discover I'm a Christian because I want to be popular. I love to be loved by humans. Uh, And so that verse 38 is a verse that, um, that sticks a knife between my ribs. But it's not saying that if you have ever been ashamed once in your life of Jesus, you're out. It's saying about a whole life direction. Am I willing to commit to Christ and walk his way? Albeit with lots of stumbles and stuff ups and moments when I go quiet and keep my head down. Or do I never commit to Christ because I I just can't give up being on the right side of this culture, being popular in this culture, fitting in with the people whose approval I need. What will I fundamentally do? Will I follow Christ closely? Or can I just not bring myself to do it? And we need to, we need to realize because we forget that it will be worth the cost. That's what Philippians 2 assures us of. As it talks about um, following Christ, having the same uh, attitude as Him, it encourages us that if we do share in Christ's attitude if we do walk the cross shaped path in this world then just as christ goes through cross to glory we will share in glory with him verse 9 therefore god exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, it's not that um, at the end of time, every knee is going to bow to my name uh, and every tongue is going to sing about me or you. But we share in his glory. We will be, we will be part of the, the winning, victorious, glorious side that gets to share in that moment of Christ's triumph. We'll be part of his victory procession. 
950 years ago, um, Britain was invaded for the last time successfully other than the Channel Islands, Second World War, yeah, I know you pedants. Um, but uh, the... Uh, um, the last proper invasion that changed the government was uh, under William the Conqueror, 1066. wasn't a proper invasion, the Orange Revolution, the nonsense. Um, I knew, anyway, the last proper time, 950 years ago, William the Conqueror invades. And you're either with him or against him. William and his small band of Normans and uh, one or two nobles who joined him. And the whole Saxon kingdom are against him. And if you're in Britain at the time, every single person is against William. Uh, the country uh, wants to destroy him, defeat him. But as you'll know, the Battle of Hastings, um, there's the great fight. You can see it on the bio tapestry. There's, it might be Harold with the, uh, the arrow in his eye, although historians as they do now. Somebody found out you can't get a PhD for saying the same things over and again. So it says that's not Harold. It's the guy next to him with his guts being hacked out with a sword. Either way, Harold gets it. Um, arrow in the eye or sword in the guts. Harrow's Harold's, that's him gone. William is victorious. William is the conquering king. At which point, all those who stood against William, all those who fought against him, are nothing. The highest nobles in Saxon England became nothing. Their castles were cleared out, and William's knights were put in. And William's soldiers, William's knights, shared the spoils of his victory. And there were many who were great and powerful and mighty and wealthy in the kingdom. But at the moment of William's victory, they became nothing. And many of his lowly knights suddenly enjoyed the spoils of his victory. And you and I, uh, when we when we fight under the banner of Christ, not uh, fighting to hurt, but fighting to bring life, fighting to self-sacrifice, fighting to love one another, there will come a moment when all history will change. Although we're in a we're in a land where we own nothing, and we are nothing in the eyes of the world, Jesus will return in glory, and suddenly everything is His, and everything will be shared with us. And we need to remember that as we fight and struggle and feel outnumbered and small and it just seems nuts. He will win and he will share everything with us. So to walk the cross-shaped path, to follow Christ, means self-denial now, but it means glory in the future. Which brings me to my main application, which is that Disney causes sexual immorality, uh, which is the obvious application of that. I'm sure you're all thinking, <laughs> that has got to be a misprint. Someone's had a Freudian slip in the office. No. Uh, how on earth can Mark 8 have anything to do with sex? Um, and uh, what has it got to do with Disney, for crying out loud? Um, actually, both have a lot to do with sex and the way that Christians think about it in our culture. Uh, here is why the cross and Mark 8 are crucial to our thinking about sex. And here is why uh, Disney leads to sexual immorality. Let me ask you, what is the starting point for discussions thinking about sexual ethics, how you should behave if you follow Jesus when it comes to sexual ethics? Where do you begin the discussion? God wants me to be happy, so... Dot, dot, dot. If God gave me these desires, dot, dot, dot. The Christian life is meant to be life to the full, dot, dot, dot. Or, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up their cross and follow me.
See, one of the reasons the the biblical call to sexual restraint, uh, the call to unmarried people, those with same-sex attraction, not to indulge sexual desires, the call to married people to be utterly faithful, come what may, one of the reasons those commands seem so utterly ridiculous is because we believe in Disney, or rather Disney reflects our culture's values. Uh, The values trumpeted in every Disney film, the highest moral calling is to follow your heart, not your crucified saviour. It's to be true to yourself, not true to your God. And if that is the starting point, if the starting point, if the sort of fundamental ground on which I stand is uh, the highest ethic is to follow my heart, then there is no way I will ever obey God. Everything changes when I see that the fundamental nature of discipleship is self-denial. The fundamental nature to be a disciple is to lay down myself and my desires and take up my cross and follow Jesus. It's not about self-fulfillment, actually. It's self-denial in this life. It's not about living for me, but for him. Not about serving my desires, but serving my God and serving others. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I think our generation of Christians is being sold a terrible lie by supposedly Christian authors. The lie that you can have the crown without the cross. That you can follow Jesus without really taking up your cross. That you can obey your desires here in this life and still be rewarded by your Heavenly Father in the next. There's no need to deny yourself. And it's a wicked, tragic lie because precious souls are being dragged away to a Christless eternity and encouraged to follow their desires and deny the word of God rather than follow Christ and to deny desires. But Mark eight thirty six says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? How tragic to live for your desires in this life and find out that you have lost eternity. Don't fall for the seductive lie. Now, of course, this applies far, far, far more broadly than uh, sex. Sex just happens to be, I think, the place where our culture is pressing hardest against uh, the Christian worldview. Uh, But I fear for many of us, myself included, that fundamentally what I'm trying to do, if I'm really, really honest, is I'm trying to get through the Christian life following Jesus with it costing me as little as possible. If I'm really honest. I'm happy for Christianity to cost me a bit. But there is this sort of, my basic aim in life is to, is to get through following Jesus with it costing as little as it, as possible. And, you know, the occasional awkward conversation when I invite a colleague to a church event, missing out on the odd night, um, out because I commit to KG, not going on quite so many holidays because of uh, giving a bit to gospel work. But the fundamental assumption I think that we as a culture bring is if it costs too much, Jesus can't possibly want me to do that. <laughs> There's no way he would require me to do something that's that costly. And if my life choices don't make sense to my non-Christian friends and family, then I probably need to dial things back a bit as a Christian. But Jesus said... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I don't know what Jesus is going to require of you. I've no idea what the future holds for any of us, which is a great relief, actually. But I do know Jesus is God and he has the right to ask for anything from any of us. 
And I know too that those who sacrificed most for him somehow seem the happiest, most hopeful, freest people of all. I think of a, a guy who was converted just before um, I became an apprentice and arrived at church. And he uh, he was from a Muslim family in Jerusalem. And he knew, he said, he was quite clear that uh, if he moved back to Jerusalem having become a Christian, it, it, one of his uncles or his cousins will try to kill him. But he said it's worth it to have eternal life. Extraordinary. I think of John and Betty Stam. Uh, missionaries who went to China in 1934, years of training, fantastic, wonderful, godly couple, really just, you know, you read their, you read their story and, and they're just the, they're just the best. Everywhere they went, they improved the life of the people around them, inspired the people around them, helped people enjoy and love God more. Uh, they were on the mission field for less than a year when, um, uh, the uh, communist revolutionaries came through and beheaded them both. But in her um, in her belongings was found a note that uh, she'd written back to the mission agency in which she quoted Philippians one twenty one. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the fundamental truth of Christianity. Yeah, to live is Christ, and to die is therefore gain. But as Spurgeon puts it, there will be no crown wearers up there who were not cross bearers down here. It is the only way. The only way for Jesus to save you and me was for him to die on a cross before going to glory. And the only way for you and I to follow Jesus is to take up our crosses, deny ourselves and follow him. Now, in one sense, I should finish right there, but I don't want to finish exactly there because there is one more lesson for us as we look into the heart of God revealed at the cross. See, we also learn, I think, one final lesson from this passage. And it's a lesson you and I really need to know when the Christian life costs us, when it costs us to follow Jesus, or when life is disappointing or painful. Put it this way, stand with Mary or John at the foot of the cross, abandoned by most of the others who followed Jesus. And you've just watched the most wicked act in all human history as hated enemies put aside their difference to gather together and murder the son of God to crucify their creator you've just seen God's anointed king flogged, beaten and hanging almost unrecognisable in blood soaked naked shame on a cross now imagine someone came up to you and quoted Romans 8.28 I know it's not yet been written but run with it yeah. I know it looks bad now but don't worry God works all things for the good of those who love him <laughs> After you've punched them, what do you... Th but of course, three days later, everything does change. Imagine, dial back a little bit further. Imagine as Jesus has been taken out to be crucified, as he's stumbling up the hill, God freezes time and comes down and says to, to Mary and John, look, I'll do anything you ask for right now. Indulge your wildest imagination. Let it run free. Your wish is my command. You can have any wish you like right now. What would they have asked for? What would have been the best they could possibly ask? Oh, uh, 
this stops. Uh, Jesus' wounds are magically healed. And, and somehow the crowd stop, uh, they stop wanting to crucify him and they turn on the Romans and the, and the authorities and they carry him back into Jerusalem and appoint him king. And, and he drives out the, uh, the Romans and, and, and God's great purposes are somehow fulfilled through the Israelite nation and people see and are amazed. And lots of different nations come to bow before this king. Yeah, I guess that would be good. But God's plans are infinitely better than the very best they could have possibly imagined at that moment. Infinitely better. And you and I need to remember that as we walk the narrow way, as we deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus. There are days, weeks, years, even decades for some of us, when we will struggle to see how can God be good given what is happening in my life right now. And there'll be times when if if God were to click his fingers and stop time and say, I'll give you any wish, we could not imagine that the continuation of this hardship could be his best. That us continuing to bear this cross could be somehow for good. And yet... And yet as we look at the cross, we learn to say, God, you are abundantly good and you can do immeasurably more than all I ask or imagine. And so I will keep carrying the cross and I will keep trusting you. At those points, as we struggle to believe that God can be good and can be doing good, we need to look to the cross. Because it's at the cross more than at any other point in all of history that we see God is unimaginably good, even when the pain is unimaginably great. And even when events make absolutely no sense. There are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers on earth. And so Christ calls us, take up your cross and follow me. Our Father God, we... We pray that you would help us not to fall for the seductive lie, but to have our our eyes so clearly fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to see him triumphant, risen to new life, returning in glory, that we might find courage and faith and trust as we're tempted to doubt, as we feel crushed, as we wonder whether we can keep going, as we wonder how you can be good. Father, help us to see the cross and to know that you are good and to keep following our Saviour. Amen.